praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Tuesday, June 15th, uh, speaking to you here from Eugene, Oregon once again, having returned from another epic adventure. <laughs> I was away the last several days down in Santa Rosa, California, attending the ordination and first masses of another friend of mine from St. Patrick's, uh, the newly ordained Father Mauricio Acevedo of the Diocese of Santa Rosa. And uh, it was a great time. <laughs> very, very glad that I went. I did realize yesterday that I've put about 3,000 miles on my car <laughs> in the last, uh, you know, 20 days or so, which is kind of a shocking realization. But it's been well worth it. Uh, yeah, and, and this this trip, oh, this trip was no exception. It was uh, great to be there. You know, I've noticed in Santa Rosa, at the cathedral at least, shout out to St. Eugene's Cathedral. They always do the liturgies very, very well. And uh, not necessarily in the extraordinary form. They do have a Latin Mass once a week on Sundays. But all their Masses that I've ever seen are just very well done. The servers are well trained. The Marian Sisters of Santa Rosa sing in the Scola. Um, but even the, the other choirs, not made up of the sisters, are seem to be very good. Everything is just well executed for the glory of God. And that gives my liturgical heart <laughs> such great joy. But uh, yeah, I drove down all day on Friday. Arrived there in time for the ordination mass Friday evening. Then we had a uh, raucous party, which lasted late into the night. <laughs> I had to leave early. In fact, it's kind of funny. The priest I was going to stay with uh, did not seem interested in leaving the party, even after I approached him and dropped some very blatant hints. <laughs> so finally, I, I had to seek shelter with a uh, good friend of mine. Uh, shout out also to Father John Plass, who I've learned is at least occasionally a listener to the podcast. If you're listening, many thanks to you, Reverend Father, for giving me a place to stay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, then I was able to assist at not one, but two solemn high masses celebrated by my friend, Father Acevedo, over the course of the weekend, as well as a Spanish mass in the ordinary form at the cathedral. Also one of his masses of Thanksgiving um, which was also very well done. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Both the liturgies and getting to spend time with uh, my friend and other friends from St. Pat's as well. And on Sunday night, I got to see a uh, former classmate of mine for dinner out in Napa Valley. We went to this nice Italian restaurant in Napa and Enjoyed some wine and pasta and a beautiful sunset and had some good conversation. These are, these are the things that, uh, that make life in this valley of tears sometimes delightful. <laughs> make our, our earthly exile uh, a little more bearable. I also, I really love driving. And for me, there's something about just the, the summer road trip, you know, leaving, getting up early and hitting the road with the dawn and driving till dusk. It's just, there's something sort of romantic about it and I really like it. And for me, these long trips, they don't really phase me. Especially, you know, if you're mostly driving in a straight line, <laughs> you kind of get into a uh, state of mind. I find I can often pray. I can often pray well when I'm driving. And uh, I also like, of course, listening to audiobooks and podcasts and that passes the hours away with a few interruptions or distractions. So for me, it's no, it's no big deal to uh, make these trips. But I will say, glad to be back here in Eugene now and to not really have anything else on the calendar, at least in the way of travel coming up uh, until I go back to St. Patrick's in August, really, for the new academic year, which is coming up fast. It's, uh, we're halfway through June now, and so, let's see, I've, I've probably got about, I've probably got about eight weeks left in the parish here at St. Mary's. 
and then it's back to school, which is kind of a weird feeling, um, considering that, well, last year was kind of the year that never was, what with us all being sent home in March. So I haven't been in school. I mean, I was doing online classes, but I haven't been in school for about a year and a half, which is the, by far the longest time I've gone in my <laughs> entire academic career, which is most of my most of my life to date, without being in a classroom. So kind of an odd feeling. In a way, it will be nice to be back. Although there is certainly a, a part of me, a large part of me, that doesn't really want to leave the parish. I'm pretty happy here. And I think that's a good sign. People, at any rate, have told me that's a good sign. Because, of course, the seminary is not a lifelong thing. It's a preparation for a lifelong thing. The parish, really, most likely, is going to be a lifelong thing. So it's a good sign that I, um, I'm enjoying it and have an affinity for it. Ah. But you know, I mentioned in the last podcast, there's a, a special joy that comes with seeing this year's round of ordinations. And it's because um, these are men who were my classmates, you know, in, in some cases, or close enough, they might as well have been. We were in the same classes together, even if not exactly in the same cohort. And uh, to see them now being raised to the altar as priests, uh, or even as deacons, there is a special joy in that, which is different from the many, many other ordinations I've seen. Some of them certainly friends, but far enough ahead of me in formation that it didn't have quite the same effect on my heart. And these most recent ones, there is that joy. There's also a special kind of fear <laughs> that I'm finding that it evokes in me because uh, this is the first year that I've have been to ordinations and have people tell me afterwards, you're next. <laughs> it's true. I mean, God willing and Archbishop Sample willing, next spring I'll be up for the diaconate, which uh, I can say it now. I can say that with reverence and fear. And I certainly am beginning to feel the weight of the reality of that. But I know I, I, I don't even really get what that means <laughs> at this point. The, uh, the coming reality is just going to become more and more clear, more and more stark in the months to come. And there are more milestones to come. I have to submit my petition for orders and then the next will be hopefully when I receive the call to orders from Archbishop Sample and then the date will be set and there's preparations to be made and, you know, on and on. But I've just been thinking about that a lot recently. This is kind of, uh, you know, this is, I mean, it's not the end of the line by any means, but this is, you know, you know, it's kind of a, don't misunderstand me, but it's kind of a crisis point. <laughs> it's kind of a, uh, a climactic time, if you will. Uh, a turning point, maybe, an inflection point, you know, a point from which there's no going back. And so even though, as I have said many times, um, I'm at really the point of having moral certainty about my vocation, I'm not really in discernment anymore. I'm just peacefully and confidently going forward, <laughs> giving myself to God and to the church. And, uh, simply waiting for their yes, their confirmation in return. Um, even though all of that is true, there's still, maybe just on a human, you know, a natural level, there's a fear of making that self-gift, which is irrevocable. Uh, because I know once I am ordained, there's no going back. And even, yes, I, I, I have known guys who've been ordained, I mentioned this in the last podcast or the one before last, I've known actually quite a few guys who've been ordained who then have left either the diaconate or the priesthood. But we all know there's, <laughs> there's some sense in which you can leave, but really you can never go back. 
once ordained, it's a permanent reality. It's a permanent stamp on the soul. It's a, an irrevocable configuration to Christ. And I've just been thinking more and more about it, that's all. It's a sobering reality to be faced with. I had the sense at uh, my friend Michael's ordination at which the gospel reading was about the seed that's cast into the earth. And Jesus said, unless this seed falls into the earth and dies, it will bear no fruit. But if it dies, it will bear fruit a hundredfold, etc., etc. I, I had this fleeting thought of, <laughs> you know, like at a wedding where they say, if, you know, if anyone has any objections, speak up now or forever hold your peace. I had this fleeting thought of standing up and shouting, wait, stop. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're getting into. I mean, this is literally, talk about sacrifice. This is like the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. You know, in the Old Covenant, the, the lamb was slain upon the altar. And in the New Covenant, it's a spiritual self-offering, a spiritual death, which leads unto life. But it's still a death. It's still a total self-renunciation, a total self donation. So there's a lot there that I've just been thinking about. Think about the, the, the Benedictines too. They have a beautiful custom um, when a monk makes his solemn vows. I saw it many times at Mount Angel in my years there. When the monk makes his solemn vows, he it lies on the floor like the priest does at ordination. He lies face down on the floor in the center of the choir and uh, He's covered over actually with a black pall, which is the same cloth that's used to cover over a casket at a funeral. And as he's covered over with the pall, um, the monks are chanting the litany of the saints. And then he's uncovered, which symbolizes, of course, the rising. He, he's, he's brought to his feet. It's the rising from death to life. And three times he stands with his arms in the form of a cross each time drawing nearer to the altar and chanting at a higher and higher pitch each time, like um, an increasingly anxious cry of the beloved, accept me, O Lord, as you have promised, accept me and I shall live. There is immense depth to ponder in that ritual. And the same thing really is happening in the ordination of a priest. It's not carried out, um, you know, in quite the same way, with quite the same ritual solemnity. Um, although there is, of course, great solemnity to the ordination of a priest. Uh, but that's the reality that's playing out in the spiritual realm. Death unto life. It's, wow. <laughs> it's amazing. And quite honestly, terrifying. But that's where the gifts of the Holy Spirit come in. That's where the Lord's grace comes in. Uh, our joy is to be small and weak uh, because that means we're not doing it by our own strength, right? In the Christian life, if we're not afraid a little bit, <laughs> we're probably doing something wrong. I don't know if that's true, but uh, <laughs> it just occurred to me. Because, yeah, otherwise, I mean, we, we can tend to distrust too much in our own strength, in our own ingenuity, our own fill-in-the-blank. But if you're a little bit fearful, and yet going forward, that means you're reliant upon the strength of God, and not your own resources. So anyway, that's just a taste of some of what I've been thinking and praying about recently. I've also had some some good unsolicited <laughs> advice recently from my own pastor and other priests. I don't know, something just about this season, ordination season. Probably it's on their minds too. This is most, you know, the time of most priests' anniversaries, right? And Father Ron, my pastor, just celebrated 14 years of priest on June 9th. So he gave me some advice today. Uh, and w one of the things he said was, he said, my advice to you as a pastor, 
is uh, take your time. You know, and of course there's this old chestnut that you could you can't escape seminary without hearing a hundred times, which is don't make any changes in your first year as a priest. Of course, I've heard many professors and priests tell me that's a a, a bogus rule. <laughs> it's a little bit too rigid. Uh, and Father Ron qualified this as well by saying what is uh, impermissible, what is illicit, you ought to change right away. But what is permissible, you should allow. Allow what you can, change what you must, and be slow to add what you want. Take the time, in other words, let things be as much as you can. Take the time to get to know the people and let them get to know you. Win their trust. And then you can lead them, you know, in the way that you see fit. And <laughs> I told him, well, Father Ron, um, you've been the best example <laughs> of that lesson that you're telling me now in words you've taught me by your example all this year. And he laughed and said, well, it did take nine years to move the high altar. <laughs> He's been assigned here nine years as pastor. Just this year, he restored the high altar back into the center of the sanctuary where it belongs. And, you know, I mean, I do think in all things balance, right? There is such a thing as moving too slowly. Um, but there is certainly such a thing as moving too quickly. And by nature, by, by temperament, you know, I tend to be impetuous. And I think I know best. And I see where I want to go and I just want to get there. And one thing I have certainly, certainly picked up from Father Ron this year, and I still, you know, have a great deal of, of practice to do. But one thing I've picked up from him is the value of patience. And above all, the value of um, spending time so that the people can get to know you. It's not a waste of time, you know, to, uh, I suppose, to put off your, your goals for the parish. It's actually an investment of time because you're spending that time on winning the trust of your people so that when you do begin to lead them in the direction that you have judged is best for the parish as a whole, they will follow rather than resisting. If it becomes just a, uh, you know, a battle of wills, then you know, the, the whole thing is lost. <laughs> the, uh, the game is up. So that's one thing. And another thing, which is on pretty much the same theme, an old priest told me in Spokane, the week before last, he's, uh, I forget his name, but he's a spiritual director at Bishop White Seminary, African priest, an older priest. And we were talking one night after dinner, and he told me, just sort of impromptu, it was unrelated to our conversation, really, as far as I remember, but he told me, when you come to a new place, plant your own seeds, yes, but don't pull up what the last man planted. <laughs> and I love that. I've been thinking about it a lot, actually. It kind of sounds like an, you know, like an African proverb or something, you know, <laughs> like some sort of uh, old world piece of wisdom. I don't know. I don't, it may be, or it may just be something that he, that he made up <laughs> and wanted to, to pass on to me. But I'm grateful that he did. Because I have been thinking about that. And uh, again, I think, by temperament, you know, my tendency would be to come into a place and uh, I have the gift, or depending on how you look at it, the curse, of uh, being able to develop a vision and be driven by it. Um, but then, what I see are all the ways the reality falls short of the vision and all the things that have to change to get from here to there. And my temptation, I think, would be to come in and pull up the whole garden, turn over all the soil, you know, start from scratch and build something new. 
and the, the good advice of this holy old priest is, yes, plant your own seeds, but don't uproot what the last man planted. There's real wisdom there. I mean, even the Lord, <laughs> even the Lord says something similar to his disciples. You remember the parable where there's an owner of a, a field and his enemy comes in the night and sows weeds, cockles, as the King James says, among the wheat. And so then his servants, the disciples, ask him, Master, do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? And he says, leave them until the harvest time. He might pull up the wheat as well. There's many, many, um, you know, lessons that we could draw from that parable. It's more than one interpretation, I suspect, as is often the case with the Lord's teachings and parables. They're polyvalent. There's many readings, but one certainly is, um, let the man who wants to engage in creative destruction beware. <laughs> because uh, when we come in and begin pulling things up and, you know, or if you want to put it another way, taking things down, <laughs> undoing what someone else has done. Well, if we're not careful and patient and we lack foresight and consideration and prudence and all these, all these good things that take time, then we're apt to do more harm than good, to pull up the wheat along with the weeds. Now, I don't say this as one preaching. I say this as one who's learning this lesson and receiving it like, a, like the bitter pill that it is. <laughs> because, uh, as I have said, you know, I'm sure that one of my great temptations as a pastor, as a leader, will be to try to get things done faster through the exercise of my will. And that's just not, that's just not the way of the Good Shepherd. The way of the Good Shepherd takes time. Um, and yet it yields the best results. So that, that's, anyway, that's something that I'm taking away from the lessons of these two good priests who I've been blessed to learn from in recent days. But that's probably enough on this topic. This just happens to be where my mind has been lingering of late, thinking about priesthood and leadership and, oh, the many things that <laughs> have yet to be revealed about my life and my vocation in years to come. I was just speaking with one of my housemates this morning, a priest. He was telling me about a difficult conversation he expected he would have to have today with an employee, which would probably lead to that employee, you know, being, being uh, let go. And he was telling me such and such person as, you know, they're a great person and of course he loves them. He's their, he's their spiritual father. This person's part of the, of the parish. And at the same time, he said, we're not a charity, which <laughs> kind of made me laugh because, yeah, like legally we are a charity. <laughs> but his point was, this, is the, you know, this money belongs to the people of God. It's not just like, we don't just hire people so they have a, a living wage. Like we hire them to do a job, which serves our mission. And this person, despite being a, a fine Christian person, really lacks the skills to do the job, you know? So that's a hard place to be uh, for him as a pastor. Has to let the person go, most likely. Um, but obviously without, he has to be very careful not to give the sense that God's rejecting them or that he's, you know, rejecting them as their spiritual father or that they're no longer welcome in the church or, you know, all these sorts of things. So these are the delicate the delicate situations that a spiritual father has to handle. And, uh, I'm just woefully unequipped. <laughs> I'm unprepared. I don't even know how much I don't know. But again, this is a place where I think, and I, I hope this might be of value to somebody who is listening too, this is a place where I think the Lord just is silently inviting me to place my trust in Him. Um, 
Because again, if you think that you know it all, <laughs> you are bound to be humbled, to, to come up short, to come face to face with your own incapacities. If you realize you don't know anything, <laughs> which at my, at my better moments, once in a while, I recognize and accept as true. And then you can come to the Lord with a poor and a humble heart and allow him to do the work through and with us as his living instruments of grace. All right, now that's truly, truly enough on this topic. Let's move over and talk for a few minutes here about the Silmarillion. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Fool of a took! Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity! Alright, so I've decided in this and a future segments from the Silmarillion, I'm not going to reference any notes at all. <laughs> um, I've I already told you a couple weeks ago I'm no longer going to look at the text of the book while I record the segment, but now I've also decided I'm not even going to look at the notes because, <laughs> you know, one thing I've recognized reading this work, I do enjoy it. I mean, I'll say that. I'm interested in it. I, I like... Um, I like the experience of kind of having the corners of the, the history of this vast world filled in, you know? Like the hobbits say, after eating a big meal, they're just filling in the corners. <laughs> they just keep snacking until they're finally, they finally fall asleep or something. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about the Silmarillion. Only, um, it's too much. To, to really just fill in the corners, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's a whole, it's a banquet on its own. And in particular, the names. The names that Tolkien gives us, they, they, they're so excessive. I mean, for every single person, place, or thing, it seems, there's five or six different names. And you know, the, the High Elves call it this, but the Sindar call it this, and in the Tongue of Men it's called this. But after such and such, it now it's no longer called that, but now it's called this or this or that. <laughs> it's, it just becomes dreadfully difficult for me to, to keep track of exactly who or what or where, what's being talked about or where, where things are taking place. It's kind of a mess. At the same time, you know, it is a glorious mess. And uh, it's something about the too muchness of it is appealing to me. And I think, without getting derailed here, just to make one small point, I think this is also kind of true of the extraordinary form of, of, the, of the Roman rite, the traditional Roman liturgy. If you've ever been to a solemn high mass, you have this experience of kind of being overwhelmed. And, you know, gradually, over many experiences of, 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 the, of the mass, you start to learn what's happening and what's going on. But the solemn high mass is, it's this glorious feast of, for all the senses, of many things happening at once. It's, it's many layered. You know, you have the priest at the altar um, saying a prayer and, and the deacon and the subdeacon and one of them is doing something else and then you have servers running around and they're over here and then they're doing their own thing and the choir is singing and maybe they're at a different place than the priest is, you know, and there's just many, many things happening all at once. And that's kind of the same thing happening, I feel like, in the Silmarillion. <laughs> there's just many layers, there's multiple levels of concurrent, harmonious, but not exactly synchronized activity. I don't know if that really makes sense. But that's sort of my, my, um, oh, if you want, my vague impression <laughs> of, of this work. Um, all right, so I've read chapters 9 through 12, and here's what I remember happened in them. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a very poor recollection, but here goes. So chapter 9, 
we hear about the Sindar. And these are the elves, if you remember, from back in like chapter 3 or something. The story of Thingol and Melian. Thingol was a king of a group of the elves. He wandered off into the forest, following the sound of his heavenly music. And he encountered Melian, one of the Maiar, a beautiful Maya. And they fell in love, and many ages passed while they gazed into each other's eyes. And then at last, he returned with her as his wife out of the forest. And his people, for the most part, they all waited for him, while the rest of the elves, for the most part, sailed west to Tol Eresea, the uh, Lonely Isle, or to Valinor. And so there was this division among the elves, where many of them went into the west, but a small group remained behind in Middle-earth, waiting to see what had become of Thingol, their king. And so they became known as the, the, the Sindar, and their language is Sindarin. And so in chapter 9 we hear kind of about, Tolkien kind of fills in their history, and I don't remember much of it. It was not terribly memorable. <laughs> um, except for, um, because mostly of Melian, who becomes their queen, because of her power, because she's of, she's a Maya, so she's of the same race, if you want, of, of the Valar, uh, a lesser degree, but she has this quasi-divine or angelic power. And so, um, because of that, the Sindar are uniquely well-protected and well-sort-of-endowed, um, and their, their kingdom becomes great in Middle-earth before the return of the Noldor out of Valinor, which we just read about last week. And in fact, Melian's power is so great that we read that, um, you know, on Goliant, uh, she escapes from Morgoth's wrath and from his, his uh, Balrogs. And she comes and takes up a hiding place on the outskirts of the Sindar kingdom. And because of Melian's power, Melian makes this kind of fence around the kingdom that this great spider creature cannot pass through. So Angoliant makes a nest for herself in the mountains, and it becomes this brooding dark place where all light is devoured, you know, but she can't enter the kingdom. And then later, Morgoth makes war on them, and many elves are killed, but ultimately the kingdom stands. But they sort of, they have to go into retreat. They kind of become this little enclave unto themselves. So that's the status quo. Then, in chapter 10, we read about how the Valar create the sun and the moon to replace the trees that, of course, Melkor, now Morgoth, and Ungoliant destroyed. And they do this by um, Nienna and Yavanna sing these songs of healing over the two withered trees. And each one, um, well, Telperion brings forth a single silver leaf, and Laurelin brings forth a single golden fruit. And then the trees utterly die. They just had enough life, enough sap left in them for that, and then they die. But they take these these last sort of remnants of the trees, and uh, Yav um, not Yavanna, but Varda, the wife of Manwe, she takes them and sets them in the sky, and they become the sun and the moon. And uh, she sets them on their, their eternal course, you know, to go round and round the earth from west, from, from east into west. And, uh, and, they, and I think she sends two of the, the Maiar to guide them. Uh, in their course to sort of pull them along like the chariot of the sun, you know, in ancient Greek myth. So that happens. It says that the elves uh, in Middle-earth are stunned and they rejoice at the first sight of the moon, brightest among all the stars. And then when the sun first appears, that's when men first appear in Middle-earth. 
And this is a good example of when Tolkien gives things just way over the top number of names, <laughs> because the elves call men by like ten different names. They're the they're the youngest. They're the the second born. They're also the sickly ones, <laughs> because they, unlike elves, men can get sick and die. Um, they're the mortals. They're the the uh, I don't know the weak ones, <laughs> all kinds of names, many of them not particularly pleasant. And uh, in chapter 12, or uh, 11, I forget where we are here, but the chapter on men, Tolkien writes that the enmity between elves and men, which came about in later days, is one of the greatest works of Morgoth, that is, of Melkor, which is interesting. Because after all, the sort of the, the, the um, foremost names for elves and men in the Legendarium are the firstborn and the secondborn, or the elder and the younger. Even the name for elves, Eldar, uh, bespeaks that relationship. So they're, they're brothers. They're, the races are like brothers. And of course, brings to mind another set of brothers whom Melkor turned against one another, doesn't it? Feanor and Fingolfin, the sons of Finway, who we heard about last week. The seeds of their enmity brought about the darkening of Valinor, the destruction of the trees, and, you know, etc., etc. All the chaos and the heartbreak that follow. So, we certainly see this theme here of sowing the seeds of division, which, uh, you know, reap long and bitter fruit. Seeds of division that is among, uh, among brothers, among family, where there ought to be unity and peace and common cause. Morgoth, the destroyer, sows these little seeds, which, you know, the, the, I'm envisioning like um, a seed sown into a crack, a seed of a tree, and as the roots spread out, this little crack becomes a yawning cavern, just a great chasm, an abyss. And uh, so I think that's an apt image. You know, the seeds are sown and eventually they become these great roots that drive brothers apart, that sunder families, that cause apparently unbridgeable divisions. So that's certainly a theme we're encountering in the Silmarillion, which is interesting to me. Because, of course, and uh, insert my usual caution against allegory here, <laughs> but of course, in our Christian tradition, uh, Satan, the Satan, you know, from the Hebrew, uh, refers to the adversary, yes, but also it has this notion of the divider, the one who divides. Ha-Satan is the one who divides. Diabolos, also in Greek, right? Something to do with division. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting here that the way we just, I suppose, the techniques of evil, if you want, the ways that, that Morgoth, that Melkor, goes about trying to achieve his purposes, which are simply domination, power, to be worshipped, to be called Lord, and to be able to make the world in his own image. Well, the, the techniques, the the means that he uses to achieve his ends are corruption of the good and division of those who ought to love one another, you know, and who naturally, uh, if left to their own devices, they would love one another. Well, therein he sows division. And of that which is good, which is made good, he takes and tortures and warps it to make something malleable to his commands, but a hideous reflection of its former self. So it's worth keeping in mind, I suppose, these uh, techniques of evil as we go on through the Silmarillion. As we see now, Feanor, who's been corrupted, we don't really, last time we saw him, he was burning the ships of the Teleri so that Fingolfin and the rest of the Noldor could not use the ships to get over to Middle-earth, and they have to make the long crossing over the ice on foot. So he's far gone, 
he's almost kind of a lunatic. We see him laughing maniacally as the ships burn, you know. So he's pretty far gone. But it's said in one of these chapters this week that Manwe weeps when he hears the report from his messenger of uh, Feanor's response to his summons, you know. Manwe has ordered him at the end to come back to Valinor and warned him of the doom that will fall upon him and all his people if they continue in their course. And Feanor, of course, spurns him. And he swears a rash oath. And when Manwe hears about it, he weeps. And uh, it's, of course, I can't check the notes, but <laughs> it says something like he, uh, oh, he wept for the corruption of this sort of greatest among the elves. This, this one with a spirit of fire endowed with so many gifts. And that none among the Valar, perhaps not even Manwe himself, uh, know the full extent of what Feanor might have done if he had not been so corrupted. What, in fact, he was meant to have done in the plans of Iluvatar. Ah. And yet, of course, uh, well, there's a beautiful exchange there where it's said, I think Manwe says, um, this word of confidence in providence that, you know, in the end, even all this evil shall be shown to have served Iluvatar's purposes. And Mandos replies, and yet it shall remain evil. Which I think beautifully sums up a theme we've talked about before on this podcast. This uh, double reality of evil. It may serve the purposes of providence, but yet it remains evil. We have to keep both very firmly in mind. So that sums up, I think, uh, these readings from the Silmarillion. One last thing, though, and I will look at the text for this, because this is not from Silmarillion, this is from the letters. I read in uh, one of Tolkien's recent letters, I think it was, let me see, yeah, letter 163. This particularly struck me because he's writing to W.H. Auden, who's a very well-known poet, and I hadn't quite realized, uh, first of all, even that they were contemporaries. Second of all, that they know each other. <laughs> and I guess Auden was asked to write a review of The Lord of the Rings. And so he wrote to Tolkien, asking for some sort of personal background of how he came to write this novel. Sort of some, you know, biographical details. Some background color <laughs> to fill in the review. And Tolkien writes back this very long letter. Two things in it particularly struck me. The first one is on the topic of allegory, and I just want to quote this sentence for you. Of course, he begins to make his usual, um, <laughs> his usual exclusion of allegorical readings of his works. But then he says, in a larger sense, it is, I suppose, impossible to write any story that is not allegorical in proportion as it comes to life. Since each of us is an allegory, now I'll repeat that again, each of us is an allegory, embodying in a particular tale and clothed in the garments of time and place, universal truth and everlasting life. And let me tell you guys, I want to get that on a poster, I want to put that up on a wall, if I wasn't uh, temperamentally <laughs> averse to tattoos, I would get it tattooed on my arm. I mean, wow, that's stunning. Each one of us is an allegory of universal truth, clothed in the garments of our particular time and place and our individual story. That is, is so stunning. And what a Catholic way of looking at the world. It's not by any, any means, denying the particularity, the individuality of each of our stories, which is unrepeatable. Um, and of course, there's a, you, I may or may not have quoted this before to you, but there is a, uh, a sister named Sister Miriam James Hydland, 
from the Society of Our Lady of the Trinity. She's a popular speaker. And she likes to say that every story is incomparable, which I think is absolutely true. Um, every one of our stories is unique. And that's by God's graciousness to us, right? That's the infinity of his creativity played out in each of our own lives. And yet, um, without negating that in any way, the other side of the coin is every one of our stories is an allegory of the one universal story. And I may speak about this a little bit more in the theology segment, actually, so I think I'll let that go there. But a beautiful quote from letter 163, Tolkien to W.H. Auden. Now, another one that struck me is this. He's writing about, <laughs> he says something that I had heard before somewhere, which is, in the midst of grading exams, he just wrote down the sentence, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And he says, without knowing what I meant or what I was doing. <laughs> it just sort of struck him like a lightning bolt out of the blue, which I, I just tremendously delight in. He's telling of that story. But then a little bit later he says about hobbits, um, here we are. He says, I myself saw the value of hobbits. I think he's talking about reviewers here who didn't necessarily see their value. I myself saw the value of hobbits in putting earth under the feet of romance and in providing subjects for ennoblement and heroes more praiseworthy than the professionals. Uh, Nolo eroizari is, of course, as good a start for a hero as Nolo episcopati is for a bishop. <laughs> of course, Nolo episcopati means I do not wish to be made a bishop. <laughs> and likewise, for his a little play on words there, Nolo eroizari, I do not wish to be a hero, which could practically be <laughs> verbatim from the lips of Bilbo. So I love that. The value of hobbits in this great adventure. They're more praiseworthy than the professional heroes because of their simplicity, their closeness to the earth, and yet, and they themselves can be ennobled, raised to great heights, but without losing what they are. That simplicity, which is their nature. I love it. All right, and then one more thing from this letter before we wrap up this segment. This is a bit of a longer quote, but uh, here it is. He's talking about um, here how he discovered parts of the world of Middle-earth, not so much created them as found them. And the whole segment is, is so delightful, I just want to share it with you. He says, if you wanted to go on from the end of The Hobbit, talking about now writing the sequel, um, The Fellowship of the Ring, if you wanted to go on from the end of The Hobbit, I think The Ring would be your inevitable choice as The Link. If then he wanted a large tail, the ring would at once acquire a capital letter, <laughs> um, and the Dark Lord would immediately appear, as he did, unasked, on the hearth at Bag End as soon as I came to that point. So the essential quest started at once. But I met a lot of things on the way that astonished me. Tom Bombadil I knew already, but I had never been to Bree. <laughs> Strider, sitting in the corner at the inn, was a shock. Uh, and I had no more idea who he was then than had Frodo. The Mines of Moria had been a mere name, and of Lothlorien no word had reached my mortal ears till I came there. Far away I knew there were the horse lords on the confines of an ancient kingdom of men, but Fangorn Forest was an unforeseen adventure. I had never heard of the house of Aeorl, nor of the stewards of Gondor. Most disquietingly of all, Saruman had never been revealed to me, and I was as mystified as Frodo at Gandalf's failure to appear on September 22nd. I knew nothing of the Palantiri, though the moment the Orthanc stone was cast from the window, I recognized it, and knew the meaning of the rhyme of lore that had been running in my mind. Seven stars and seven stones, and one white tree. These rhymes and names will crop up, but they do not always explain themselves. I have yet to discover anything about the cats of Queen Beruthiel, which is a throwaway line that I think Aragorn 
X at some point. Uh, but he says, I did know more or less all about Gollum and his part, and Sam, and I knew that the way was guarded by a spider. And if that has anything to do with my being stung by a tarantula when a small child, people are welcome to the notion, supposing the improbable, that anyone is interested. <laughs> I can only say that I remember nothing about it, should not know it if I had not been told it, and I do not dislike spiders particularly, <laughs> and have no urge to kill them. I usually rescue that I usually rescue those whom I find in the bath. <laughs> and thus ends this quote from Tolkien's letter 163. Uh, overall, I just found it delightful, this notion of him discovering, you know, being to Bree, coming to the Lothlorien, meeting Saruman, and so on. Um, I love this. Lately, I've been... I haven't actually done anything with this yet, but I will say I've been taken with the idea of writing again, of, of writing stories, or of writing a, a novel, or something like this. Maybe because I've been reading so much fiction. I used to write quite a lot when I was a child. And I've written very little... I mean, I, well, I actually, I write quite a lot. Uh, but, I, you know, I write academic papers, and I write articles, and I write homilies and reflections, and, you know, these sorts of things. And, and I write poetry from time to time. But I haven't written a story in a long time. And so something about Tolkien's... Uh, description here of discovering Middle-earth as he goes, as he went, is just enchanting to me. This idea of beginning a tale um, with a notion maybe of how it will end, but being surprised by all the things you find along the way. I think that's, I don't know, some, if you're a writer, something in that most likely will speak to your heart too. Because I think there's something there that it's, it's this uh, desire written into us to be sub-creators, right? Like Tolkien speaks about. To exercise the creativity that's part of the imago Dei, that's part of the image of God, imprinted in each one of us. Um, and maybe like the Valar, you know, who hear the eternal music, but there's much that surprises them in the way that it plays out in the actual creation and in the long years of its unfolding. I think too that's part of the joy of creation the joy of being surprised <laughs> by what you yourself have made. All right, so that's all I have to say about Tolkien. I am getting close to the rectory here on my nighttime stroll. But for these last few minutes, um, let's talk a little bit about theology. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, I think there's a profound truth in this line that Tolkien mentioned to us about um, each one of our lives being allegorical within the unique stories of our individual lives is constantly being played out the one great drama of all humankind. That's my firm conviction. And in the Catholic Church, in our tradition, we, we call this um, the kerygma. Now, kerygma, I think lately it's become kind of a, uh, a trendy term <laughs> in like Catholic, you know, pastoral and theological circles. And people are, are throwing it around more and more. I'm, at least I'm hearing it more and more. And some people, well, I mean, sometimes it's used and it's not really explained. And so some people are kind of wary of it. And I'll give you an example. As here at St. Mary's, the RCIA team is planning for next year. Our director of the RCIA mentioned that she's thinking about including as one of the very first classes a discussion of the kerygma. And others on the team expressed the concern that the kerygma, well, that's maybe we should save that for later, save it for towards the end of the year. It's kind of an advanced sounding concept that's kind of complicated. Shouldn't we address that later on or maybe break it up over two sessions or, you know, implicit in their 
remarks, I think, I detected this uncertainty about what the kerygma is and this kind of fear of some esoteric concept that they know is important, but they don't quite understand how it applies. On the other hand, I will say Father Ron has begun, and without, I don't think he's necessarily announced it as such, although I've been away, so I don't know what he might have done, but he told me that he's begun preaching a series of Sunday homilies on the kerygma, and is broken up into four parts. So before I get to that, let me tell you what the kerygma is, <laughs> in case you're not aware. Kerygma means the proclamation. It's a Greek word, and it, the verb is keruso, and it, it means, naturally enough, to proclaim or to cry out. Think of uh, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, you know, referring to John the Baptist, this, this line from Isaiah. And the Greek verb there is kerusein, crying out. So it's a proclamation of a message. Um, all right, so kerygma, a proclamation. What's being proclaimed? <laughs> well, essentially the, the, gos the gospel, the heart of the gospel. The kerygma basically means the heart of the gospel, what's most essential in the gospel story. It means the, the core, you know, if you boil everything down, like if you distill the gospel to its most essential elements, the sine qua non, that's what the kerygma is. It's, um, yeah, it's like, <laughs> you could think of it as like those one sentence summaries that you would get in the TV guide <laughs> of a story, you know, of a TV show or something. Um, something like that. It's the core, the, the, the most basic expression, okay, of the gospel, all right? So that's the kerygma. So the four-part series Father Ron is doing, he told me last night, is, is he, I think he got this from someone else, maybe Father Brett Brannon, um, who recently gave a retreat here in the Archdiocese. But anyway, the four-part series he's doing, he told me, the four parts are created, captured, rescued, and response. So let me get through this. I'll tell you each part quickly. Created, we're created by God out of love and for love. This is huge. So God makes us for himself. That's the beginning of the good news, you guys. And it, 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 it is good news and it is unexpected to so many in our culture today. It's so radically outside of our postmodern worldview that in fact we're created with a purpose. We're created out of love, out of God's sheer goodness and his desire to share his life with us. And that's our purpose, that's our mission. Whatever else may lie in between along the way, we have come from God and we're returning to God. Step two, captured. This is the bad news, this is the complication. We were, we were made out of and for this infinite goodness. But we have fallen into slavery. We live in a fallen world. We're born behind enemy lines. We're in fact born into servitude, like the children of the Israelites who are born in Egypt. And they grow up in slavery. They grow up in chains. So this is our human condition, born in this fallen world. Uh, but, step three, rescued. God who made us has come to save us. The God who made us in the beginning, he saw our human plight and he came to rescue us in the most extravagant and the most, the most perfect, the most fitting way possible. Uh, not simply by hitting the reset button, not wiping everything away as if it had never been, but he entered into the midst of our misery of our human distress. He took on our nature. He became our brother, sharing in everything that we have to bear. He gave everything he had. And by an absolute act of self-gift, for our sake, he paid the price and thereby redeemed us. He redeemed us from slavery. He's won us back from the master of this earthly kingdom, the devil, at the cost of his own blood. And so we're no longer citizens of Egypt, if you want, but we're citizens of heaven. 
washed clean by the blood of Christ. And this rescuing, which has already taken place on kind of a, a metaphysical level, if you want, is playing out right now in the interior kingdom of our souls, where even now, we're being rescued, like Christ is, is rescuing us, he's conquering uh, the devil within and setting us free day by day. And that's our great task, is to now cooperate with him. And this is part four now, response. What's our response to this great story in which we're caught up? Our response must be to live as if we have been rescued, to live like free men and free women, to cooperate with God's saving work, and thereby to enter into the bliss of the kingdom of God, and not to live as slaves in the kingdom of darkness. So there you go. That's my <laughs> uh, off-the-cuff preaching of the kerygma. So this is the universal story. And this is so essential in all of our preaching, in all of our teaching. I mean, we don't need to... Um, we don't want to be like one-hit wonders. We don't want to just say the same thing over and over, obviously. But we need to have internalized this to such an extent that in basically everything we say and do, we are telling this story. It needs to become just such a, a, a habit of, of our minds and our hearts that we're constantly telling the story of the kerygma. And I, I found um, this, this has kind of become a natural part of my preaching as I give these, these reflections at prayer services and after masses and things. Um, what I find is, whatever particular point I'm trying to make on that particular day, I'm basically saying the same thing, <laughs> which is the story of the kerygma. Like, you're made for God. You're made for heaven. And God has rescued you. So live like it. <laughs> live into it. Like, claim the gifts that are yours. Stand firm in the identity that's yours. Basically, come into your own, Christians sons and daughters of God and um, yeah step into the kingdom that's the kerygma and so yeah another thing I recognize is um, kind of about my my process of preaching my, and preparation for preaching I was talking to some priest friends about this last week or this last weekend in Santa Rosa and there's all kinds of different methods and I'm, I'm such a novice, it's not even funny. <laughs> I'm like a, a greenhorn on the Oregon Trail, you know. I, 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 don't know a, I don't know anything. But this has been kind of my approach recently. Is um, I know what I want to say, and I come about this through prayer and meditating upon the readings. And I get this idea of, like, what's the message I want to preach? And then my whole process of preparation is building up a credible case. <laughs> for, like, basically, um, I, I end with a conclusion and I go back and construct the premises that lead to it. And I think about the objections, or I, I think about like, what, what do I need to say to make this final point credible and persuasive and believable? And I just build back until I feel like I have a strong, a logical edifice that builds up like a stairway you can climb to get to that final point. I think it's been working reasonably well. But what I've recognized about this process is, like I said, uh, the kerygma kind of emerges organically from it. Uh, because the point that I want to get to, uh, if, I, if I build back far enough, <laughs> uh, then in the process of like building up the edifice to support the conclusion, the kerygma is woven into it because the, all the steps along the way that lead to that conclusion are all the steps of the kerygma. <laughs> like we're created by God and we've been enslaved, but now we're rescued and redeemed and this is the truth and this is how we have to live. And you know, eventually you get to the end, but only by going through all the steps in between. And so 
I think this is a, uh, a fruitful way for me to prepare my preaching. Of course, I've hopefully got many years of preaching ahead of me to refine my craft and to learn from better preachers than myself. But this is how, I, how I've been doing it so far. And um, it was sort of a heartening realization today as I was thinking about the kerygma to realize, oh, that's basically how I've been preaching already without really meaning to. Telling the core of the story of our salvation again and again. So friends, I'll leave it there. I'm back at the rectory now, so I'm going to go in, uh, quickly edit and post this podcast, have a cup of tea, and, oh, I still have to pray my rosary, (laughs) and then get to bed, hopefully before midnight. Uh, It's getting close already. But I pray you have a most blessed week. Um, Let's see, I will be busy again this Saturday. We have the Melchizedek Project. So I'll talk to you again next Tuesday with another episode of In Your Embrace. Until then, I pray, dear friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord, that you remain in his embrace this week and always. May Almighty God bless you, protect you from all evil, and bring you to everlasting life. Amen.